0: No more to sa, Guatu or Hatua, some Mars, some Buddha song. So tonight we're marking the end of the year 2019 and preparing ourselves for what comes next. And I'm sure if uh, we were to check in with each other and ask how the year has been, 2019, we would We would um, all have different stories and uh, and what sort of a year it's been and um, we all have somewhat different reasons for choosing to come to a place like this on an evening like this. But I would expect that there's something that unites us here and that is we're all, I would expect, concerned about not wasting this opportunity we have. We could just watch the telly and go to bed early, that's true. But we want to use this time skillfully. and I'm often reminded of this when I see people making the effort to come out here in the middle of winter and spend time, whether it's on a Sunday night or Often the, the members of the lay community coming out on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, coming to make generous offerings of food of support to support the community and, and reflecting on how the reason, one of the reasons why people come here is because they want to be reminded of that which unites us. We're all, we're all part of a spiritual community of people who are concerned about not wasting this opportunity we have as human beings. Here we are, human beings living on planet Earth, and at this time in particular, so much information that we have access to, so many issues that we could be concerned about, on top of what all human beings have always had to think about is what's the point of this existence. We all know on some level that eventually it's going to come to an end. And is there something we're supposed to be doing in the meantime? So I would uh, expect that this is what brings us here together this evening. We all have have concerns, we all have questions, real questions. Hmm. Like, what's the point of all this? What am I supposed to be doing? What can I do? Or if it's more... To do with what 's happening in the outer world, uh, and how can I contribute to what 's going on? There are so many issues and things to be worried about and how do I fit into all this, or if we 're perhaps less of a an introvert and, and uh, more of an extrovert it 's more like what are we doing as as the human family Where, where are we going? What direction are we going in mm things seem to be changing at such an extraordinary rate now and the level of anxiety that comes as a result of that rate of change is that, how do I fit into this? How can we deal with this? So these are all very real questions and I would think that uh, it's something for those of us who we share a spiritual concern, have a spiritual dimension to our lives, that we spend time contemplating how do we meet such questions if we if we 're not careful, some of these questions can really stir us up terribly saying, the level of anxiety in the world now is, is uh, seriously high uh, consumption of medication now i don 't know if there's statistics about it, but I imagine it's it's um a record level, and um, so these questions we have. The questions are important. How do we, as people who have a spiritual conviction, how do we engage those questions? How do we handle those questions? How do we relate to those questions? It occurs to me that this evening we could perhaps contemplate this a little bit together to see if we are relating to these important questions in a way whereby they're generating real benefit or are we just allowing them to cause more confusion. Mm. So it seems to me, I've thought about this and it seems to me there's basically two options with these big questions, these important questions in life. Like, what really matters? And what can I do about this situation? How can I contribute? Where are we all going? There's two ways of relating to questions. Basically, one way is that we get stirred up, as we're saying, we get confused, we get unsettled, we get disturbed, we even get despairing. There's a lot of despairing people around now. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from having a quiet mind, it comes from thinking. And it comes from questioning, it comes from doubting. And the way, one way of relating to our questions and our doubts is to fall into despair and dissatisfaction and disappointment. But I would suggest there's also another way that we can meet our questions, receive our questions, listen to our questions, these questions that bubble up to the surface, to receive them in a way whereby they, instead of taking us out after searching for a solution out there in the outer activity and more proliferation of the mind and, and manipulation of the outer world, instead of following that momentum, we could try, indeed we could cultivate, a way of meeting our questions whereby we allow them to draw us inwards. And we allow these questions, instead of to challenge us to go out further and become more disoriented and more disappointed and, and confused, we receive, that we prepare ourselves, we train ourselves so as to receive these questions as an invitation to go inwards. And to actually recognise that really these questions are coming from a place of interest and in getting it right. And in some ways they're an expression of faith that there is a solution to all this confusion, all this chaos. Whether it's my personal individual confusion and chaos or whether it's the chaos and confusion of the world, there can be, it can be an expression of our faith that there is a solution that gives rise to these questions. And so one reason why I'm raising it this evening for contemplation is to suggest that we look into this and say, well, how do we receive our questions and our doubts? Do we use it as an indictment? Do we read it as an indictment against our inadequacy because we, we're not all happy all the time? Sometimes we get confused and upset. Or do we, are we able to listen to these questions and receive them in a way whereby they nourish contemplation. Instead of nourishing proliferation, mental proliferation, they nourish contemplation, uh, inner investigation, which contributes to a feeling of actually taking responsibility for our lives. Instead of following the outflow of the proliferation and finding who's to blame, what's wrong with the world, who got us into this mess who's responsible for my mess instead of following that momentum to rather follow an inward investigation to train our minds so as to listen inwardly and cultivate an increased sense of taking responsibility for this Mm -hmm. which if engage it really skillfully could possibly lead us to the opposite, rather than discontent lead us to more contentment maybe even lead us to insight, maybe lead, lead us to understanding, to real solutions, things where we could really contribute and instead of blaming the world and blaming ourselves or blaming anything, actually arrive at a clearer perspective and so this of course as you would imagine, I'm I would be encouraging of, and this is the path of contemplation and one reason why we put the time aside and invest energy in disciplining our faculties, training our attention so that it can become stilled and collected. Uh, a collected form of intention has got a, uh, a greater degree of clarity to it and learning how to generate mindfulness, how to generate energy, how to cultivate trust the you know, Spiritual faculties that I was speaking about the other night. If we do this, then there's a better chance that when these real challenging questions that could be threatening arise, there's a much better chance that we'll meet them in a way that's really constructive and inspiring and uplifting. We don't have to feel threatened by the chaos of the world or the chaos even of our own mind. We don't have to. We, uh, Maybe we still do, but to recognise, to have confidence that this is not... We don't have to see change and imbalance as an indictment against who we are or an indictment against the world, but it's something to invite inquiry and investigation So the, when I was um, when I lived in Thailand, this is many years ago now, of mid 1970s, and the first teacher I lived with was Venerable Blajan Tate, and I often remember the first interview that I had with him. The first time uh, we went to see him, we were invited to go to his kuti, and and uh, he asked us a few questions. Us, I mean, there's this other young monk. Uh, and myself who went there together at the same time to, to train under him, to practice with him, he asked us how we were practicing and listened. And then he gave us a little short talk which was translated for us. And I still remember the message that he conveyed which is so important, which is, he said, your job in this practice in the spiritual life and, and cultivating the heart is to recognise the difference between the heart itself and the activity of the heart. Uh, In other words, to recognise awareness itself and the activity of awareness. Uh, uh, Or in the Thai words, to recognise the jit and the agan kong jit. This is your task, this is your job and that was such a valuable gift to be given that at such an early stage of practice. Because it's the case that most of us grow up not even knowing that that's a possibility. Yeah. Even a lot of Buddhists who yeah. purport to go for refuge to the Buddha don't realise that the Buddha is the heart itself. The Buddha is awareness itself. The Buddha stands for, the image of the Buddha stands for consciousness itself. The activity of consciousness, the activity of awareness, the activity of the heart, the Kong jit that's the world. Yeah. And so when we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha... We say, the most important thing in life is to cultivate consciousness itself, to cultivate awareness itself. And so most of us come from a place where we're totally caught up in the activity, all the feelings, all the moods, all the thoughts, all the sensations, all the ideas, all the sounds, all the sights, all the tastes, or as the Buddha put it, all the dust of the world. But what about the space in which that dust is floating through? What about that which knows all the objects of the world. What about the knowing and the knowing itself? And so, considering this question of how might we cultivate, how might we develop ourselves, how might we not waste this precious opportunity we have um, so that we are not just lost in the confusion of the world, that we're not just intimidated by the questions that arise in our minds, as important as those questions might be, yeah, how might we train ourselves, prepare ourselves, so as to really make the most of this precious opportunity? Well, of course, as you would expect, the, the Buddha's solution is to do just that, to prioritise the heart itself, to prioritise the cultivation of awareness itself. Well, the other teacher I lived with in Thailand, Chah, Chai's expression that related to this was, he used the image of water. water, Water is always essentially pure. It's just we need to cultivate, we need to develop, we need to study to see all that which is added that's not essential. The essential nature of water, no matter how impure it might appear, the essential nature of water doesn't change. Water is water. It's essentially inherently pure. But there's all the extra that gets in the way, and so it is with our awareness, all the greed, hatred and delusion, all the confusion, all the ignorance, all the conceit, all the consequence of the habits of clinging, as we would all know, it appears to sully things. The essential nature, we can assume, at least from the perspective of Buddhist teachings, is already inherently there. It's what we're looking for. Now, it makes a huge difference whether that's the way we approach life, do we approach life with a confidence and a trust in the inherent purity of awareness, the inherent purity of the heart itself, and then an interest in developing the clear seeing which recognises that which is not inherent, that which is not pure, that which is not essential, and then letting go of it. Is that our approach? Or do we approach life with the conditioned view as... Or well, at least I know in my case I was brought up with a story that actually you're born damaged. And you've got to spend your life striving to become worthy. You've got to strive to prove that you're lovable, that you're that you're valuable. And this attitude of always striving to prove something, to get somewhere, to overcome something what well, are consequences to that and so in this in terms of this contemplation of how we could skillfully prepare ourselves to engage the great questions of life uh, i think it's really worth checking to see what kind of assumptions are we operating out of fortunately we now have these teachings from the buddha which uh, that suggest that we can we don't have to believe in the idea that we're inherently damaged And we've got to prove our value. It's more a case of actually letting go of all that's extra, all these self-images, all these stories, all these opinions, all the history that we carry around, all the mistakes I've made, all the problems that I've got, all the hindrances I have to overcome. If we haven't understood the Buddha's teachings well enough then even though we might be familiar with some of these practices and exercises, we can still be approaching life and approaching our practice with an idea that there's something inherently wrong with me. Mm. I've got to do something to prove myself, prove my worth. Mm. Mm. And these questions that come to us, these important questions Mm. how do we meet them? well if we are used to actually always striving and always trying to get somewhere then maybe we meet those questions in a way whereby instead of drawing us inwards and leading to increased contentment and clarity and calm and confidence these real and understandable questions just stir us up and draw us out and, and make us feel even more ad- inadequate. A lot of the spiritual exercises, if we pick them up in the wrong way, they can really hurt us. And it reminds me of a, a young fellow I met some years ago who came to visit and he was, as I recall, and the impression I had anyway, he was quite a renowned Tai Chi teacher. And... Uh, This guy was, I mean, he was just so yanged out, if that's a valid expression. I mean, he was just so extreme, so intense, just like a, so wired and scared. And I mean, not only did he scare me, but he was also scaring himself. He was in a terrible state. The way he was picking up his Tai Chi exercises wasn't taking him to balance. He was in some ways impressive, but there was, on a... In a level, a certain, certain intense degree of imbalance and discomfort. And, and the same thing applies with, with Buddhist meditation practices. It's not rare, sadly it's not rare, that, that uh, you can hear of people who have thrown themselves into the training with great gusto and, and enthusiasm and faith and confidence and energy and, and sincerity... And then they nearly push themselves over the edge. In fact, just a couple of days ago, somebody, actually a good friend who I've known for many years, um, many years, shared with me the uh, his experience back in the, uh, I think, the 70s, it was, when I was going to Thailand. He was going to India, and he and his wife had been studying some Tibetan teachings and been very inspired, and and um, decided the thing to do was just to go to India and and find a, a Tibetan lama that they could train under and and do the real practice. And so they went out there, and they found, sure enough, they found a Tibetan lama and they found a place to stay in this um, this monastery, and and threw themselves into practice and. And it wasn't very long before this guy, uh, he'd never told me this before. I knew he'd had a hard time, but I didn't realise that. He was in a state of serious paranoia. And uh, all these visualisations they were supposed to be doing, and all these techniques that they were supposed to be practising, and, and the competition between all the Westerners there, and who was having the special getting the special secret teachings from the Lama, and, and all these practices were not leading to contentment. They were in fact leading the opposite direction, leading to discontentment. And, and he very, very nearly had a complete breakdown while he was there. And, and this is not rare. It's, um, thankfully, he left in time and he um, put it all back together again. But sadly, there are some cases where people give themselves these te- teachings and don't manage to get it back together again. They get so, uh, they end up so disintegrated and have such an intense breakdown that uh, they never actually recover, which is is tragic. And so it's like like climbing a mountain. We might like to think that the view from the top of the mountain is going to be great, and we might admire other people who've been up there and taken photographs that they put on their Instagram and so on. But But that doesn't mean to say that we are prepared for climbing the mountain. You know, we need to really prepare ourselves properly, skillfully. And often that means also gradually and and humbly finding out where our weaknesses and where our strengths are and and questioning the assumptions that we're operating out of. On our Forest Sunker calendar, those of you that have the calendar would hopefully have read the verse, the Dhammapada verse there, 290, which for this month says, it is wisdom which leads to the letting go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a happiness which is greater it takes wisdom, it is wisdom the Buddha was saying that leads us to being willing to let go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a happiness which is greater now we can read that and think well it's wisdom well I want wisdom so I should let go of my lesser happiness which means I should just practice harder I should put more effort into my meditation and do the technique more hours in every day with more enthusiasm and, and and that's going to get the results that I'm looking for. Well, that may not be wisdom that's motivating us. And again, we need to check to see that is it actually leading us to an increased level of happiness? Mm-hmm. Is it really working? Are these teachings working to keep checking? You know, Conditions on the level of the activity of the mind, with a belief that says there's something inherently wrong with us, we can just be using these Buddhist teachings to hurt ourselves even more yeah. and if we have the good fortune to come across a teaching a teacher who offers us a reflection which encourages us to to step back and look at the way we 're relating to the teachings, looking at how we 're picking up the spiritual exercises yeah. we might be inspired to actually uh, be a bit more gentle, a bit more patient, a bit more gradual, a bit more humble in our expectations and and let go of some of the demands that we're making of ourselves and, and come across, for instance, and maybe we start to, instead of just applying the technique and doing the technique and trying to refine down the meditation technique, we start to engage our own creative capacity for questioning we start to listen to our questions value our questions Mm. and maybe we start to see how for instance how extraordinarily judgmental we can be Mm. if we're conditioned very early on in life with the image the suggestion that we're somehow damaged and we've got to prove our worth we've got to improve ourselves Mm. And we can be always taking a position against where we're at. Not really meeting ourselves where we're at, not really getting to know ourselves where we're at, not really receiving ourselves where we're at, until then letting go happens, which of course is what we're aiming for, but actually fighting ourselves, judging ourselves, criticising ourselves, judging each other, criticizing each other, fighting each other. And where's all that coming from? That's coming from the lack of real appreciation of what it means to go for refuge to the Buddha. Instead of going for refuge to awareness itself, we're still going for refuge to the world. The idea of my meditation, the image of a new improved version of me, the idea of getting enlightened, the idea of progress on the path, the view we have that we've got to always be Overcoming our obstacles, that's all the world that's all activity mm. forgetting what it really means to go for refuge to the Buddha, which means actually emphasizing awareness itself, just knowing just knowing being willing to being willing to meet ourselves where we're at in the moment and having confidence in that now. That friend I was telling you about a minute ago, who went to India, and and uh, I'm sure, and he's sure that the Lama had very good intentions. The Lama wasn't on uh, bad intentions and bad intention in the way that he was offering teachings, but he didn't uh, probably. The Lama probably didn't recognise, as is the case for a lot of the Ajahn's in Thailand or or the Roshi's in Japan. Uh, a lot of these teachers don't recognise just how locked into the idea of striving that so many of us are. And the teacher keeps saying, as the lama kept saying to my friend, all you have to do is have faith. Just have faith. Have more faith. What you need is more faith. And he didn't realise, actually, that most of us are not very good on the faith level because we're, we're taught to doubt everything. That's what scientific education model does. It teaches you. It praises It idolises questioning everything. And so if that's the way we've been conditioned to question and then the teacher just tells us, no, you should just have faith, that can create difficulties, which is what I was alluding to before, all these casualties on the spiritual path. People who don't know how to simply trust. And we're not taught how, most of us are not taught how to trust. We're taught, some of us are, we're taught early on in life that we're supposed to believe, but belief is not the same thing as faith. Belief is a, something that happens in our heads. We hold to an idea, a view, a perspective. Faith is more of a heart quality you know, I was speaking with somebody just yesterday about that they wanted they wanted me to explain how I understood the cultivation of faith and i i I gave the image of said it's like it's like you know, if you you've got a rose a rose bush and you've got the color of the rose that you can you, know, you can recognize that particular color and you can maybe you can photograph it or you can paint it, but you can get the color and then you can touch it. But, the rose is, is tangible, it's got thorns and it's like this and you can cut the rose and you put it in a jar. And But what about the fragrance of the rose? The fragrance is of a different dimension, isn't it? You can't get it in the same way. You can't photograph the fragrance. You can't capture it in the same way. And for me this works as a useful metaphor for... Faith, faith and trust and confidence on the path of practice. Yeah. Trust, if we try to get trust, what is trust? What is faith? What is what is this? And we try to get it, well, that's the exact opposite. That's the exact opposite of faith. That's the exact opposite of trusting. Trusting is where we're willing to allow. Another good image and another good exercise, And those of you that go for holidays in Corfu or such places, you know, maybe know what it's like to swim in the ocean and go floating. Or New Zealand, if you want to go that far. Some very nice beaches in New Zealand. and you float in the ocean. You don't have to do anything to stay afloat other than trust. And when you trust and you relax your belly and you breathe in a certain way, the water just holds you. You're not kicking and splashing to keep yourself afloat the water holds you, how does that happen? well it can happen but there is a little something that we need to do for it to happen that little something is tremendously important because as soon as we contract our belly and distrust and inhibit the breathing then we start to sink again and so Approaching the spiritual journey when we don't even know how to trust is very, very risky business. So, once again, getting back to how do we approach life's big questions, how do we engage the challenges that we're all called to face, the chaos, the confusion, the apparent impossibility sometimes, personal and global. Do we immediately default to clinging to our fears and doubts or do we engage our reaction, our fears and our doubts and learn how to trust? Fear and doubt are not necessarily the enemy or the opposite of faith and trust and confidence. Yeah. If we haven't practiced properly, if we haven't really looked into these things then we can imagine that there are somehow opposites or they are even enemies and again maybe that's something that we were taught in an early stage of life, that to doubt and to ask questions is a sign of a lack of faith. It may well be a sign of a lack of belief, but maybe some beliefs actually we shouldn't really go along with. So this is important as we contemplate the way we ourselves meet our real questions and address the real issues, whether they're personal, individual, or global, preparing our hearts and minds, going for refuge to the Buddha, remembering that awareness itself is the emphasis. Not there's no end to the activity of the world, the sight, sounds, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions. There's no end to that. And being caught up in that, of course, that leads to confusion. Of course, if we're caught up in it, then it leads to despair mm. and the natural reactions for instance, the natural reactions we have to the world, if it's uh, something that's disagreeable like uh, often mentioned before, the wit- witnessing for instance, witnessing abuse or bullying or abuse of power and of course that gives rise to aversion and... Mm. If we haven't looked at our relationship, if we don't know how to examine investigate our relationship to aversion, we can immediately judge it and say, oh, if I'm a Buddhist, I shouldn't feel aversion. Well, how are you going to stop feeling aversion for somebody who's a bully? Of course we feel aversion. But do we have to feel hatred? And what's the difference between aversion and hatred? Well, the difference is whether we're clinging or not. Or likewise with liking. Mm -hmm. You can like sitting by the fire in the evening, on a cold evening, and like having a nice cup of tea, but does that have to turn into attachment? Well, if we cling to liking, then we create greed. If we cling to aversion, then we create hatred. The likable and dislikable experiences of life are not the problem. Uh, The liking and disliking are not the problem. But the clinging is a source of very real difficulty for us. How are we going to get to see that? Well, we have to work with the conditions that we have, uh, the way we've been programmed, our own particular form of conditioning. We're not like anybody else. There's only one of me. How do we meet ourselves where we're at? That's a really important question. How do we engage these teachings this ancient and wonderful tradition that we've had the good fortune to come across how can we engage it in a way whereby it really works where it really leads to increased well-being probably some of you have heard before that I often like to talk about the difference between goal-oriented practice and source-oriented practice and one reason why I like to talk about that is because it was such a, a turning point for me personally and I've seen for a lot of other people as well that uh, when you're conditioned with the idea that somehow you're, you're damaged and you've got to always prove your worth and strive to overcome your difficulties and achieve the goals in life, when, when, when we're conditioned in that way and we bring that conditioning to the spiritual journey, as I was saying before, we can really tie ourselves up in knots terribly. You know, after my first rainy season, I ended up in hospital. I was such a mess. They <laughs> flew me down to Bangkok and the abbot of the monastery I was living in uh, arranged me to get put into hospital and they'd ran all these tests on me. Actually, they couldn't find anything wrong with me. You know. Not physically, there wasn't anything wrong with me, not really. But certainly I'd tied myself up in knots and because of the approach that I was taking to practice. So always following the conditioned assumptions of our worldly mind and forgetting the refuge as awareness itself, letting go of the world as the practice, forgetting that means we can just spend all our time running around in a circle, trying to get better concentration, trying to have better insights, Mm trying to find the best teacher or trying to find the best monastery. Mm -hmm. If you follow the orientation of practice that I refer to as goal-oriented practice, it seems to work for some people, but if you follow that when you're already conditioned to be striving all the time, then there is a real risk that we can make ourselves much worse. The teachers may sound very confident Teachers of the goal-oriented traditions can sound very confident and may genuinely, sincerely want to share their confidence with us. But when they're telling us that we should just strive harder and make more effort, then maybe that's not the best advice. Maybe when they're giving us a list of all the obstacles we have to overcome and all the insights we have to attain and the techniques that we have to stay committed to, that may not necessarily be the kind of advice is going to work for us. And even if they're talking about letting go and being with the way things are, uh, there's often a tone in the message which implies that still we have to be striving to go somewhere and get something. Whereas if we've tried that and found that it's not working for us, well, it's perfectly suitable to consider the option, as I was explaining before, of a source-oriented approach, which is characterised by trusting itself, trusting in inherent purity, trusting that what we're looking for is already there behind all the habits of clinging, all the striving, all the struggling. Where's it coming from? A source-oriented approach to practice means that we're willing to slow down and meet ourselves where we're at and all our feelings of inadequacy. In the beginning, for a lot of us, we get so inspired and we maybe have some nice experiences at the beginning of the spiritual journey, but then once you get down to the nitty-gritty and you get over the initial inspiration and you start to find all your heedless habits and the challenges, that's where we need to be super careful And if this goal-oriented striving approach is not working for us, well, let's step back, question some of the assumptions that we've been holding on to, like the idea that there's something lacking, like the compulsive judging tendency that we have that there's something really wrong with me. And instead of trying to, instead of following those assumptions, is just to listen to them listen to the voice in our heads, the feeling in our hearts that's telling us there's something wrong with us that I'm not good enough that I've got to get somewhere Mm. that there's an inherent problem with life, that there's a problem with the world, that there's somebody to blame for all this suffering to listen to all that and to feel it in the body, to really receive it instead of trying to overcome it instead of trying to get rid of it instead of trying to fix ourselves to really slow down and meet ourselves This is again the the emphasis that uh, the teachers often give us to cultivate mindfulness in the body is so skillful and so important and we might think oh no that's not important we just want to contemplate emptiness or uh, strive to be more concentrated in and develop the jhanas and so on yeah. well the first, very first foundation of the four foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of body can we do that, can we apply ourselves to the body cultivate awareness, sensitivity yeah. what does our big toe how does our big toe feel right now can we dwell in our big toe and be contented with feeling what our big toe feels like or are we so obsessed, so addicted so self-centred and located in our heads that we don't want to waste our time with our big toe. That which brings us back to balance and contentment and understanding might happen because we come out of our heads and stop trying to develop the jhanas and just feel what our big toe feels like. Feel what it's like to just gently walk up and down And 20 paces up and down, and not trying to get anywhere, not trying to do anything, just can I be contented simply walking up and down, or do I always have to be striving to get somewhere? If we get interested in these such questions and in such an approach, which, as I was saying, is I like to call the source oriented approach, then maybe we see how obsessed we've been all these years trying so hard thinking that this is virtuous it's not virtuous to be fighting ourselves Mm. and if that's the disposition if that's the habit that we have to always try to be overcoming things and getting the answers and breaking through to the insights that's not trust, that's not faith that's not going for refuge to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha when I go for refuge to the Dhamma, that's like saying, may the Dhamma manifest when the Dhamma is ready. That's going for refuge. Yeah, that's trusting in Dhamma. But is that what we're actually doing? Or is there still a tendency to be always thinking it's up to me? Yeah. We, don't, we tend not to really trust in the Buddha. We tend not to trust in the Triple Gem. We tend to trust in ourselves, not in a sense, like the Buddha said when "Atahi no ko porsia," one's self is one's own refuge. How could it be otherwise? He wasn't talking about the deluded ego self. He was talking about this being, this being. This whole being is what we need to study this is what we need to receive this is what we need to get to know and so once again getting back to the questions that we all feel I expect we all feel from time to time seriously challenged by what's this all about how much time have I got left on this planet here am I using it wisely am I finding real benefit or am I just treading water am I just chilling out am I just putting up with it Or am I really appreciating this good fortune? And how do we really appreciate this good fortune? If we're meeting ourselves and receiving ourselves and letting go of ourselves, then maybe we'll find that we'll actually be at peace with ourselves. And such questions, as I was saying in the beginning, such questions won't necessarily appear as some sort of an indictment against us. There'll actually be an invitation, an invitation to look more deeply.